Jeremiah 6, verses 1 through 3. O you children of Benjamin, gather yourselves to flee from the midst of Jerusalem. Blow the trumpet in Tekoa, and set up a signal fire in Beth Hacherem. For disaster appears out of the north, and great destruction. I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. The shepherds with their flock shall come to her. They shall pitch their tents against her all around. Each one shall pasture in his own place. Father, help us to understand your word this evening. And as we pray, Lord, that your word will indeed stir our hearts. Provoke us, Lord, when we see things in this world that are against you. Provoke us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Provoke us to stand upon the truth of the word of God. Provoke us, Lord God, not to be silent, but to be vocal about what is your plan and purpose for those who know you and come to you, Lord. And I ask, Father God, that we will be about your business until that day when Jesus Christ comes for his church. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Give us understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 6 of Jeremiah concludes the second prophetic message of judgment against Judah and Jerusalem, which began actually in verse 5 of chapter 4. So you go back to chapter 4, and and chapters 4, 5, and 6 all deal with this second prophetic message of judgment that God has given Jeremiah to give to Judah and Jerusalem. The first prophetic message is found in chapters 2 and 3. So this is the second one. But at the very end of this message, in verse 27, what I want you to do is go back, go all the way forward to verse 27. We're going to study the last verses before we study the first of chapter 6. Because at the very end of this message, in verse 27, God told Jeremiah, I have set you as an assayer and a fortress among my people, that you may know and test their way. I want you to consider that word assayer. I have set you as an assayer and a fortress among my people that you may know and test their way. An assayer is a person who tests ores for the presence of precious metals. Precious metals often occur as particles dispersed throughout an ore. A large sample of ore, such as silver ore, is assayed by fire. The ore is melted together with lead to produce what is called a button. The button is then melted in a process that eliminates impurities such as lead, leaving only a bead. The bead is then treated with an acid to dissolve out the pure silver. What is then left through this process is the pure silver and not any of the impurities. So Jeremiah was an assayer. God is saying to him, I have set you as an assayer. Judah was the ore sample being assayed by uh, to find precious silver. The results of Jeremiah's assay are reported in verses 28 through 30. To assay means to test. So in verses 28 through 30, uh, God says to him, they are all stubborn rebels, speaking of Judah and Jerusalem. They are all stubborn rebels, walking as slanders. They are bronze and iron. They are all corruptors. The bellows blow fiercely. 
the bellows are blowing the air upon the fire to make the fire hotter and hotter. The lead is consumed by the fire. The smelter refines in vain, for the wicked are not drawn off. People will call them rejected silver, because the Lord has rejected them. So God found nothing precious in the ore. And so the assayers report would say they were rejected silver. Jeremiah's judgment of Judah is an assayer's report. And like any good report, its conclusion was clearly stated. And the conclusion was this. They were being rejected by God. That was the conclusion. Now with any good conclusion, there has to be content. And there has to be context. So the content to, uh, the content to base this conclusion or the basis conclusion upon, is found in all the verses leading up to this end. Which means we go all the way back to chapter 4, verse 5. So chapters 4, 5, and 6. This is the whole content of the report. Now we're not going to go all the way back to chapter 4. We are going to look at a couple of things just to tie things together. But each of these chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Jeremiah, contain three things. Uh, um, Actually, four things. I put three down. I'm not telling you. I made a mistake. It's four. Because <laughs> I have four points here. The first one is that in chapters 4, 5, and 6, there are announcements dealing with the reality of God's judgment. There are announcements dealing with the reality of God's judgment. In other words, judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. We saw it in chapter 4. We see it in chapter 5. And we're going to see it in chapter 6. Secondly, there are assessments. There are assessments of the reasons for God's judgments. And what was the assessment? The assessment would then be what was placed upon Judah, which was they were an idolatrous and rebellious people. That was the assessment of the reasons for God's judgment. Thirdly, were the appeals for repentance from God's judgment. The appeals came from God Himself, chapters 4, 5, and 6, you'll see them, return to Me. Every opportunity that God gives His people to come back to Him is this appeal for repentance from God's judgment. I will keep you from judgment if you come back to Me. I'll keep you from, from what you're going to you know, obviously face unless you turn your, your, from your wicked ways and come back to Me. The fourth thing are the appraisals on how God's judgment affected Jer uh, Jeremiah personally. They would be, in other words, the reactions on how God's judgment affected Jeremiah personally. If you remember back in chapter 4, Lord, you've allowed them to be deceived. You've allowed them to be deceived. So what Jeremiah was saying is, you know, he's affected by the very fact that his own very own people are going to be judged. But it wasn't God who deceived them, it was the false prophets who deceived them. So what is, what is his conclusion then, is that he has to warn them. He needs to be obedient to God, and he needs to warn them that this judgment is coming. So the first seven, cha the first seven verses, I should say, of chapter 6, speak of the reality of God's judgment, in that the Lord is declaring war on the kingdom of Judah and its capital city. Can you imagine just the very thought that God is having to declare war upon His own people? 
When they had been given everything that they needed for life, everything that they needed to be the, the representatives and the witnesses of God, the one and only God, the one and true God, God gave them everything they needed, and yet they rejected Him, refused to obey, and decided to rebel by serving other gods. So God has to declare war in His own people. And listen to verses 1 through 3. Oh, you children of Benjamin, gather yourselves together, or gather yourselves, I should say, to flee from the midst of Jerusalem. Blow the trumpet in Tekoa, and set up a signal fire in Beth Hakereb. For disaster appears out of the north, and great destruction. I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. The shepherds with their flocks shall come to her. They shall pitch their tents against her all around. Each one shall pasture in his own place. Now, for an understanding of this, first of all, we know that Babylon was coming from the north. We've seen that from the very beginning of our study of Jeremiah. Babylon, the, the nation that God is going to use to bring judgment upon his people, is coming from the north. And Jeremiah, at this point, was even warning his own hometown of Anatot, because Anatot was in, in the region of Bethlehem, was what I should say, in the region of Benjamin, that was his tribe, Jeremiah's tribe, and they, kind of, they shared actually, uh, it was a small tribe that uh, shared Jerusalem with the tribe of Judah. Benjamin was, the, was north of Judah, and, and, and Jerusalem sat right, in, you know, right where they shared the city itself. So Benjamin was located just north of Judah, and the prophet was warning them to flee south, but not to stop at Jerusalem. A lot of times, they would, you know, whenever there was trouble, they would, in the small towns and villages, people were warned, there's trouble coming, they would flee to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem had the, the, the walls. The, Jerusalem had the, the fortresses. Jerusalem had the gates. Jerusalem had the protection. But, but Jeremiah is now telling them, don't stop there, because Jerusalem's going to get it too. They're going to get their judgment. So don't stop there. If you're going to flee, keep going. So he's warning his own people, warning Benjamin. And, and, and the shofar was sounded again. And I have to believe that the shofar was blown by Jeremiah himself to warn the people. But the shofar, the, the trumpet, was, was sounded again as it was in chapter 4, as with the signal, uh, signal fires or the standards. Let's go back and look at that for just a moment. So you can see how connected chapters 4 through 6 are. Jeremiah 4 verse 5. God says to Jeremiah, Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet in the land. Cry, gather together and say, Assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities. And then in verse 6 of Jeremiah 4, it says, Set up the standard. The standard would be the signal fires. Set up the standard towards Zion. Take refuge. Do not delay, for I will bring disaster from the north and great destruction. So now it's getting closer and closer. The time is at hand. And he says, Blow the trumpet. Blow the trumpet in Tekoa. Tekoa, by the way, was a small town in the hill country of Judah. It was located 11 miles southeast of Jerusalem. So it was, there was even a warning south of Jerusalem. Uh, Tekoa, if you, if you uh, have read the prophets, you realize it's the birthplace of the prophet Amos. Beth Hacherem literally means the house of the vineyard. It was a place in Judah halfway between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. 
So between Jerusalem and Bethlehem was Beth Hakerem. The fires were lit there to help the fleeing people. It was to warn them there was time to flee. The Lord compares Jerusalem now to a beautiful and delicate woman, but she will end up like a widow with all of her beauty gone from her. You see, if you uh, take away beauty, what, what, ha- what you have left then is nothing. Especially with this city that God says, this is Zion, my city. And she's going to end up like a widow with all of her beauty gone, in effect, taken from her. I want to compare, if you will, Lamentations 1 verse 1 with this thought that we just read in, in, in Jeremiah 6 um, verse 2 where it says, I've likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. Because in Lamentations 1 verse 1, this is the book following Jeremiah, the same uh, author. He writes in the very first verse, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who was great among the nations. The princess among the provinces has become a slave. How great uh, Jerusalem was. How proud the Jews were of that great city. But their pride, their insolence, their arrogance began to bring them down. And how we have to make a comparison here with our own country, where at times we can be overtly proud of things, proud of our government, proud of our form of government, proud of our military, proud of a lot of things, even though today with so much fighting going on and financial instabilities that we have, not too many people are very proud of those things right now. It reminds us, you see, how we cannot begin to take pride in things, even in in nations. Our whole dependency has to be on the God who made us, on the God who created us, on the God who placed us in a nation that we can say, for the most part, has been a godly nation. But where has that godliness gone? And where is it going after this? So just think, you know, the warnings themselves could also be warnings for us to say, we need to keep our eyes on God in this country at this time. You know, it is thought that Jerusalem would be so completely wiped out to the point that shepherds would graze their flocks where the city once was. But it's important to note a few things. First of all, it's important to note that with all of the rocks and, you know, if Babylon destroyed the city as it really as it did, it would be hard to graze on all of the rocks that were laid waste and the stones. But it's important also to note that the shepherds were more than likely the Babylonian soldiers who eventually invaded the beautiful pastures surrounding the city and set up their own tents against the city of Zion and ruthlessly taking advantage of the flocks that should have belonged to the Lord. And really, when you think about it, the flock was the people. The flocks of the Lord are the people. Why do we call pastors today shepherds? Under shepherds to Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus say, I am the shepherd, I'm the good shepherd of the sheep? Who are the sheep? The sheep are His people. And so, 
the shepherds of Babylon come and they have no mercy. And it reminds you of somewhat of what, uh, of what Jesus had taught in John chapter 10 when he talks about the hirelings as opposed to those who are true shepherds who would give their lives for the sheep. The hirelings only care for themselves. And then when you think that Babylon itself coming because God is allowing them to come, they're not coming to shepherd, they're coming to destroy. But how often do we hear about Israel and their condition as sheep without a shepherd? Think about Numbers, going all the way back to Numbers, chapter 27, verses 15 through 17. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. Moses was speaking in terms of what he understood because he was a shepherd, a shepherd of of Jethro's flocks out in the wilderness, And he speaks of going out and coming in just like shepherds did. But what is he saying to the Lord? Put a man over these people. Because right now, Israel is like sheep without a shepherd. And the same picture continues. 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 17. By the way, 1 Kings 22, 17 and 2 Chronicles 18, 16 are are really the same accounts. It is the prophet Micaiah speaking to the northern kingdom, Ahab. And notice what it says. Then he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. Same thing, 2 Chronicles 18.16. Practically the same words, you know. These have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. They are a sheep that have no shepherd. Matthew 9, verse 36. Jesus had this in his own heart, in his own mind. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Now, where was Jesus? Jesus was in the midst of people who had, they had priests, they had elders, they had rabbis, they had Pharisees and Sadducees. They had all these people who were spiritual leaders, supposedly, and yet they were like sheep without shepherds. Same concept, same thing going on in their mind. Not caring for the flocks that Jesus came to gather together as his own. But getting back to our text, the Lord then spoke to the Babylonian army. And not only imparts his strategy to them, but commands them what to do. God tells the Babylonians what to do. Look at verses 4 through 7 of Jeremiah chapter 6. Going back to Jeremiah now. Now you see he speaks to Babylon. He says, prepare war against her. Now the word prepare here is a very interesting word. I'm going to talk about it in just a moment. So you might want to mark it down in your Bible. It is very important. He says to Babylon, prepare war against her. Arise and let us go up at noon. Woe to us, for the day goes away, for the shadows of the evening are lengthening. Arise and let us go by night and let us destroy her palaces. For thus has the Lord of hosts said, Cut down trees, build a mound against Jerusalem. This is the city to be punished. She is full of oppression in her midst. As a fountain wells up with water, so she wells up with her wickedness. 
Violence and plundering are heard in her before me continually. Our grief and wounds. You have got to go and punish them. You are supposed to cut down all of these trees and you build a mound. This was a siege mound, you see. Trees, long trees were, were placed up against the, the walls of a city and, and, and done so in kind of a wedge form. And then dirt was piled over all of this rock and, and, and wood. And this is how they were, you know, the forces would climb up over the wall. And so God is even telling them what to do. The word prepare that I was telling you about in verse 4 is the Hebrew word kadash. Kadash. Q-A-D-A-S-H. Kadash. Which literally means to sanctify or concentrate. Or consecrate, I mean. To sanctify or consecrate. In other words, make a holy war. There's a word for that today in Islam. Make a jihad. Interesting, isn't it? Make a jihad. This was a holy war for the Babylonians to set apart as they did to their gods. And God is saying, do it. Interesting, isn't it? Islam today is in jihad against the West, against Israel in particular, and against the United States in particular. And people will say, that's just radical Islam. That is Islam, folks. Islam is radical. There are a lot of Muslims who they call are moderates. They don't understand these things. They just, you know. But if, this is one reason why some, is, some Muslims don't have a problem with killing other Muslims who aren't on the same page with them. Rather than just say, you know what, get your act together, they kill them. That's a holy war, isn't it? It's crazy, but that's what they do. God is saying, prepare this holy war. It's the same word that is used in Joel, Joel chapter 3, verse 9. I have to say Joel, because I don't want to confuse it with either the book of Job, where it end, ends with a B, or make you think that there might be a book called the book of Joe, like J-O-E. So it's the book of Joel. Just to make it clear. The book of Joel, chapter 3, verse 9, says, Proclaim this among the nations. Notice, among the nations. Who are the nations? Not the Jews, but the Gentiles. Prepare, or proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Prepare, Kadash, for war. Do you know that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not a God of war? He is a God of love, of mercy, grace, truth, and peace. He is a God of life, not of war. But when His people have to be punished, when his people have to be corrected, chastened, disciplined, to bring them back to him. He calls the nations, prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. 
Micah chapter 3 verse 5, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make, me, make my people stray, who chant peace while they chew with their teeth, but who prepare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. The same word, Kadash. So the Babylonians were to make a surprise attack at noon, the hottest time of the day when it wasn't expected, and continue the attacks throughout the night when most armies retire. In other words, they were to continue their siege, their attacks, their war, constantly, 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 until they destroyed it all. Is that not how Satan himself works against the children of God today? On a constant, constant basis. Never sleeps. Attacks at the times when we're not expecting those attacks. And then when we retire, that's when we need to be most vigilant. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful, vigilant in your prayers. Because the end of all things is at hand. So then they were to cut down the trees to scale the walls of the city in Jerusalem. In other words, a siege ramp. He then tells them why they were doing it. He tells them why. The city must be punished for her wickedness since she was like a well that pours out filthy water. And so it continues on in verses 8 and 9. But now God speaks to Jerusalem and says, But be instructed, O Jerusalem. Be instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my soul depart from you. In other words, learn something here. I'm trying to get you to hear me. I'm trying to get you to pay attention to me. I'm trying to get you to see that I'm serious about what I'm going to do to you if you don't repent and come back to me and return to me. Be instructed, O Jerusalem, lest my, my soul departs from you. In essence, it's Ichabod. Ichabod, what is that? The Spirit has departed. The Spirit has departed. Lest I make you desolate, a land not inhabited. In other words, I'll wipe out this whole land of you. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They shall thoroughly glean as a vine the remnant of Israel as a grape gatherer. Put your hand back in to the branches. So you have to follow here he, he says to Babylon, prepare for war. Then he says to Israel, listen to me. Please listen, be instructed, lest my soul depart from you. Learn from this. Then he speaks of Babylon and says, they shall thoroughly glean as a vine the remnant of Israel. So here in verses 8 and 9, this was the last warning before the Lord would depart from them and leave the land desolate, before He would depart from them and let Babylon come and do what they're eventually uh, going to do. But the destruction would be complete, you see. God is saying here that the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem is going to be complete. Judah was like a vine ripe with grapes that is completely stripped of its clusters. You ever take, you know, just a kind of a cluster of grapes and that one, you know, vine itself... That holds pretty much all the clusters are connected to it. If you just took your hand and just did that and strip it, that's what he was saying. 
in essence. To strip it all of the grapes, leaving just this empty, empty vine. But the greater picture here was of a vineyard being gleaned thoroughly. A vineyard that is gleaned thoroughly. Those who cultivate grapes in ancient Israel were required by law to allow the poor to glean their vineyards. Gleaning was the process of going back over the vineyard after the main harvest to gather every last grape that the harvesters had missed. Now, and a lot of times, you know, they, you know after the, the, the main harvest, they would allow the poor to go and then glean whatever they could, take out whatever they could so that they could eat. This is how God provided for the poor. Now, Jeremiah used this uh, metaphor as a powerful image for what the Babylonians would do to the remnant of Israel. Not only would Nebuchadnezzar's army capture the city, which was the main harvest, but it would then come after the survivors to glean what was left. You see, even though they were warned to leave, a lot of them did not leave. They stayed and were destroyed or taken into captivity. In other words, they would, they would, uh, there would be nothing left. The city destroyed, the people taken into captivity. Many of them killed. And the, reason for, the reasons for judgment now in this chapter, I said that this was a running theme through chapters 4, 5, and 6. Now the reasons for judgment in this chapter, as well as Jeremiah's reaction, with his, which is his appraisal of what is being done to the judgment, will be found in verses 10 through 17. Now we're going to chop it up a little bit here, but in verses 10 through 13, let's read that. Uh, Jeremiah 6, 10. To whom shall I speak and give warning? that they may hear. Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised, and they cannot give heed. Who's this? It's Jeremiah. To whom shall I speak and give warning, that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised, they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. That's Jeremiah. I'm weary of holding this in. I tell them they don't listen. They're not only uncircumcised of heart, they're uncircumcised of ear. And I'm full of the fury of the Lord. God then speaks and says, I will pour out on the children outside and on the assembly of young men together, for even the husband shall be taken with a wife, the aged with him who is a full days or full of days. Their houses shall be turned over to others. Fields and wives together, for I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. Because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. Now Jeremiah lamented the fact that at this critical hour in Judah's history, nobody was listening. Nobody was listening. I hope and pray that when you tell people about Jesus Christ today, because you are, you are concerned about their souls, you're concerned about their eternal destiny, that when people <clears throat> hear you speaking, that they're listening to you and considering. You know, people are still coming to the Lord today. Praise God that people are still coming to the Lord. <clears throat> and... and you know, the time of the Gentiles is, is not quite yet over. God is, has given us this time, this day and age of grace, to present the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who need Him. But 
that number is starting to get smaller and smaller as we see the day of Christ approaching. Because people, and pe- people are more and more getting deceived about spiritual issues and spiritual things. And more and more we need to stay on, on the truth of the Word of God to present the Word of God rightly to them so that they might come to Christ. But you see, they're still listening to us, so preach the gospel. Well, getting back to the, the Judites, not only were their hearts uncircumcised, but so were their ears, and they refused to hear the word of God. Remember, in our study of the book of Acts, chapter 7, Stephen's message to the Jews? In verses 51 through 53, Stephen said to them, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Not just your heart, but your ears. You're not listening to what God is saying. You're not listening to what I'm saying. You are stiff-necked, stubborn, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so did you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Speaking of Jesus. Who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. The law was brought to them going all the way back to Exodus 20. Angels bring the the law and, and, and they have not kept it. You know, it is sad to think that the people had no respect or delight for God's word. I mean, it is just sad to think that people no longer have respect or delight for God's word. And the saddest, about, the saddest thing about that is that even you know, pockets within the church are putting aside the, the, the Word of God, putting aside... You know, they, they, we've watered it down, uh, first of all, with all kinds of, of, of modern translations that are going after thought and not precise uh, uh, definition. We've, we've lost some ideas there about what the, what the Word of God says. Watered down... Uh, translations the worst and I'll tell you this uh, and if you have it you know come see me I'll give you a really good Bible but if you have a, a one called the message you know that that is not that is really just not good I mean I'll talk to you about it I love you man I want to give you something I'll give you one of mine I just want you to have something that you can really study that that's not a good one anyway that's neither here nor there but but, but here listen to have respect or delight for God's word. The Jews knew this. They knew, they knew it already because it was in their it was in their word. It was in their Hebrew scriptures. Psalm 1 verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight, notice, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Now, folks, look at that and ask yourself, do you delight in the Word of God and do you meditate upon it day and night? Do you meditate upon the wonderful things that God has given us in His Word? And then he says in verse 3, He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall never wither, and, and whatever he does shall prosper. We are planted into God's Word. No matter what things are happening around us, we are planted in God's Word and we're growing. Our leaf will never wither. The, you know, the, the season will always be one of spring and summer, one of growing and, and, and blossoming and, and, and bearing fruit. Wonderful when we're that connected to God's Word, that connected to the love of God, 
that connected to the Word of God, connected with delight and respect for God's Word. You know, I believe that a great indication of where a person's walk is with the Lord is their attitude toward God's Word. Your attitude towards, towards God's Word. When the Word starts to become boring to them, the warning lights ought to be going off. The problem is never that God's Word is boring. Simply, the real problem is that their heart has become hardened. Their hearts have become hardened. Some of the greatest saints in all of, of you know, all of Christian life, some of the greatest saints, have read the Bible over and over and over, and every day they say they find something new that builds them up, that encourages them, that, that says, oh, this is just, just wonderful fruit for me. Wonderful meat. A man who had been a Christian over 50 years, when asked, how many times have you read the Bible? 70 times in my life. And every day I still learn something new. Now compare that to someone who just has so many other things on their mind, and, but, you know, the Word of God isn't that important and sits there and gets a lot of dust on it, you know, throughout the day or week. You think their life is going to be even close to matching that person who, who just lives by faith, simple and humble before God because he knows God's Word and because he believes it and he trusts it with all of his heart. What a difference loving God's Word is going to make in your life. But think about this in Psalm 95, verses 6 through 11. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of, the, of trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me. They tried me, they, though they, they saw my work. For forty years I was grieved with that generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Three times in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews uses that passage from Psalm 95. Harden not your hearts. Three times in the New Testament, we are exhorted not to harden our hearts. Hoping that the church would listen to him. Well, now, going back to Jeremiah, he's full of wrath because he says to the Lord, They're not listening. And he could no longer hold it all in. And the Lord begins to speak, telling the people that his anger would be poured out in young and old men and women and even the children. But rulers and priests wouldn't be able to escape. Notice, rulers and priests would not be able to escape. Go back for just a moment and look at that passage. Verse 13, Jeremiah 6. Because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness, and from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. 
rulers and priests would, would not be able to escape. In fact, they were the most guilty because they had given the people a false confidence and refused to repent of their own sins. And so what we find then is in verses 14 and 15, it says, They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, which means they have sought to heal the people superficially by just saying peace, peace, when there is no peace. Because the warnings have been saying, repent and turn back to me. I will rescue you. You shall not be moved. You will be strengthened. You will be watched over. But you need to return to me. You need to come with your hearts to me. They refused. And God kept warning them. And they refused to listen. But these priests and prophets were saying, Oh, no, no, no. Peace. Peace. It's coming. God's a a good God. A God of peace. Well, yeah, He is. But He's also a holy God. He's a righteous God. He's a true God. And He's faithful to His Word. And notice in verse 15 it says, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? The rulers and the priests and the people? Were they ashamed? No, He says. They were not at all ashamed. Nor did they know how to blush. You know that this is our society today? People don't blush anymore. People are not ashamed of of all of this, you know, open expressions of sexual freedoms that we have in our country today. Hardly people blush anymore. And if you turn away from it, they think you're kind of weird. can't watch TV anymore, really. You have to be very selective. Even shows on, on, on prime time, regular sta- stations. Some of you remember, I, you know, I, I, I even know by, by looking out there who remembers when there were only three stations. And you had to get up and turn the sta- to the station yourself. You had to get up. And not only that, but when you turned it, you had to move the what? The antennas. You remember that? Make it, you know. And then if not, you know, you, you would watch it like this because you had to be part of the antenna. Remember that? Who remembers that? Man, you guys are old. But anyway, that's, but you know, we never blushed in those days. In a way, it's good to have a remote because you have to keep turning. You see, whoa, you know, God, Yo. Because you, know, you just turn on channel. Whoa, man, what's going on there? It's like that's not supposed to be happening on TV. Folks, we got to wake up here. We better be ashamed. We better blush. It means that we have a conscience. That knows that God says there are right, there is right and wrong, there is good and evil. And we need to be on the side of good and not evil. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Their superficial cry of peace was like, like trying to place a band-aid on a, gusher, a gushing arterial bleeder. A gushing arterial bleeder. Oh, let's just put a band-aid on it. 
That's what it was when they just said, oh, peace. Even Jesus said, you know, if you tell, it's not good enough if you just go up to a person that has need and say, you know, peace. And then walk away. You haven't done anything. If a person is in need and you can give, some, give him what he needs, then you do that. Be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. The nation was bleeding to death, you see. There was no band-aid to stop the bleeding that was going on, and so the Lord delivers the verdict. This is a long sentence because we've got to move on here, but Jeremiah 6, verses 16 to 23. Thus says the Lord, Stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where the good way is, and walk in it, and then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Notice how arrogant it is. Look for the old paths. Look for the ways that are right. And you'll find rest for your soul. And they said, we'll not walk in it. We're progressive. We're moving right along in this world. We're, we're sophisticated. You know, the world today is telling you they're sophisticated. We can handle all this adult stuff. Also, I said, watchmen over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. What is that saying? It was a matter of will. They chose not to listen. And therefore, hear you nations and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth, nations and earth, he's saying. God is speaking to them. Behold, I will certainly bring calamity on this people the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not heeded my words, nor my law, but rejected it. For what purpose to me comes frankincense from Sheba, and sweet cane from a far country? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices sweet to me. Therefore thus says the Lord, Behold, I will lay stumbling blocks before this people, and the fathers and the sons together shall fall on them. The neighbor and his friends shall perish. Thus says the Lord, Behold, a people comes from the north country, and a great nation will be raised from the farthest parts of the earth. They will lay hold on bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea, and they ride on horses, as men of war set in array against you, O daughter of Zion. Isn't it interesting that today, people even in the church are looking for new revelations from God? since the old ways are no longer good enough for them? And as Christians and non-Christians alike are flocking after new things, couldn't this be the reason that few, if any, are finding rest for their souls? They're going here and there, listening to this thought and this philosophy and that way of life, and thinking, well, you know, we need to embrace it all, you see. That's the new revelation today. The old ways. We're we're beyond the old. But people are missing the point that the old is actually the new. God even promised in the book of of Isaiah, I will do a new thing for you. But it is based upon the old. Not old in in nature or old in, in age, but old in the sense... A foundation. It was good then, it's good now. 
People are not finding rest for their souls because they're not in the in that old time gospel. <laughs> the old time word of God. Reading from Genesis to Revelation and going from Revelation to Genesis and reading back and forth and, and knowing and understanding what God's word is saying to them. Those who, who are there find rest for their souls. Those who walk on the old path. And you're going to find out who the old path is in just a moment. I want you to concern. I want you to be concerned about God's wisdom. Concerning God's wisdom is something foundational. Think about Proverbs 8:23. Proverbs 8:23 says, "I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, before there was ever an earth." God's wisdom. God's wisdom was good then. Is it good now? Yes, isn't it? Concerning God's counsel, Isaiah 46, verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. From the very beginning, is the counsel of God good? Is it not good still? For us, we'll say, well, that's old, but it's still good. It doesn't have to change. Concerning God's prophecies, Isaiah 48, verse 3, I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth, and I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. Concerning God's prophecies, though they were of old, are they not good today? Are they not being fulfilled today? Is it not coming to pass today? Concerning God's truth, Psalm 100, verse 5, For the Lord is good, His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endures to all generations. Isn't God's truth good? From the very beginning to even today, it has never changed. Even God says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, I am the Lord, I do not change. And of Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8, it says Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do these things change? And so, are they not the old paths that are the good way to seek, the good way to walk, the good place to be? And another interesting thing that is that, is that phrase that we, that we read there in, in verse 16 of Jeremiah 6. Stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths where the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. Do you know Jesus uses that phrase too? And when does He use it? He uses it in Matthew chapter 11 verses 28 through 30 when Jesus said, Come to Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The very same words that God is saying to His people. For, your, for My yoke is easy and My burden light. My burden is light. What does this tell us about the old paths, but that Jesus is that path by which we can come to His rest? That's the new thing that God said I will give you. The new thing is the old path of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way. That's the path. From everlasting to everlasting, is Jesus a created being? No. He's the Creator. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, verse 
1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. First, uh, John chapter 1 verse 14. The Word became flesh. In the beginning was the Word. Jesus. The old path is the only path. And when you're on it, it's a new path. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He never changes. So truth doesn't change. And sometimes, you know, because we live in a new age, a new day, and, and all, you know, there's a lot of new things that we can use to proclaim the gospel, but one thing doesn't change. The message doesn't change. Methodology may change, but the, meth- but the, but the message doesn't change. How many people are scoffing today about where God's judgments are? May I tell you that in California there was a gay pride parade. Well, there have been many everywhere. And I just use it because I, I, I read about this one in California where they were all, many of them were carrying banners that said God is gay. That's a scoff. That's a mocking. It burdens the heart. I mentioned Bill Maher in his movie, Religious. We'll see how far that goes. How many people are scoffing today about God's judgments? Even, even, a, even segments of the church don't believe that Israel is our God's people, that the church is now Israel, and Israel has been forsaken by God. Even though we see the prophecies coming to pass, and we see Israel, a new nation, uh, since 1948, but, but nonetheless, you know, back in, in, into the land. Scoffing, well, where's the promise of God's coming? They don't believe in the rapture of the church. They don't believe in the, uh, you know, and I, I say they don't believe it. They don't, in other words, they don't, it's not a, a matter of where it is, where it is in the, within a seven-year period. They just don't believe it at all. They're scoffing at end-time prof- prophecy and prof- prof- prophetic teachers and all of that. Peter warned in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in, in the last days walking according to their own lusts. According to their own lusts. People don't want to believe in God because they want to do whatever they want to do in and of their own desires and lusts. And saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So, Where's the promise? There's no promise. There's no God. But the sad thing is that God's own people refuse to listen to Him. So He speaks to the Gentiles and He speaks to the dust of the earth to be witnesses of what is coming. That's what we read in verses 18 and 19. And sin was born in their hearts and minds and as they allowed it to grow, it manifested in their actions. Very simply, if we don't learn that lesson here, we can be in trouble too. And let me say it again. Sin was born in their hearts and minds and as they allowed it to grow, it manifested in their actions. That is the bad fruit that is born out of sin and does not bring honor to God. Verse 20 points out 
that here were people living in sin, and yet they were still bringing sacrifices to God. People want to continue in their lifestyles and in, in, in the things that they do and in the lusts that they live in and the desires that they want, but they want to say, but we go to church too. And we offer sacrifices to God too. But these are God's people who were still bringing sacrifices, but those sacrifices to God were meaningless. God doesn't want our sacrifices. He wants our obedience in Him and to Him. Samuel to King Saul would say this in 1 Samuel 15 verses 22 and 23. So Samuel said, As the Lord has greater delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed or to pay attention and listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is is as iniquity and idolatry. So you may not be bowing down to idols, but if you don't obey the Lord and you don't want to go in that direction, you're as much committing idolatry and witchcraft and, and iniquity as those who do. Because in essence, you're worshiping yourself and not the God who created you. And then he says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. But the Lord had been merciful to Saul, and guess what? The Lord was merciful with this nation that we've been talking about here tonight. And they still rejected Him. They still rejected Him. And so He sends His judgment upon them by the hands of the Babylonians who were not so merciful. They were ruthless. And notice verses 24 to 26. We have heard the report of it. Our hands grow feeble. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain is of a woman in labor. Do not go out in the field nor walk by the way because of the sword of the enemy. Fear is on every side. O daughter of my people, dress in sackcloth and roll about in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son, most bitter lamentation, for the plunder will soon come upon us. Jeremiah crying out to his own people. Grieve over what's happened. Mourn over these things. They wouldn't do it. You know that sometimes suffering brings out the best in people, but that wouldn't happen in the siege of Jerusalem. Terror was on every side, anguish, fear, and weakness abounded, and when the Lord turned on the furnace, it would reveal the people as rejected silver, nothing but dross to be thrown away. You see, He wasn't purifying them, He was punishing them. They weren't being refined, they were being rejected. We're back now at the assayer's report in verses 27 through 30, and we'll close with this. We've already studied it, so we'll just read it. I've set you as an assayer in a fortress among my people that you may know and test their way. They are all stubborn rebels, walking as slanders. They are bronze and iron. They are all corruptors. The bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. The smelter refines in vain, for the wicked are not drawn off. People will call them rejected silver, because the Lord has rejected them. Now let me, let me give you some encouragement. As Christians... Believers in Jesus Christ, God corrects us and disciplines us and chastens us as his children because he loves us. That is not punishment. That is purifying. God wants to purify us as his people. 
So because we have had that blessing of the Holy Spirit in our lives, even though we sometimes walk away, what happens? The Holy Spirit says, I'm not leaving you. I'm going to convict you of sin. So when we receive the conviction of sin, what does it do to us? It doesn't make us happy. It makes us burdened. And the only thing we can do is get on our knees and ask for forgiveness and ask for God's blessing to lift us up and to get us back on the right track. So God's not out to punish you. Now that's not for me to tell you right now. Well, God doesn't punish Christians. Because in effect, you know, He doesn't, but He does purify. My, my encouragement to you is, is don't put yourself in a position where you want to test that out. Amen? I mean, you don't want to test that out. Don't be testing God. Because that kind of test is saying that you don't really believe. And that you don't really trust. And you don't really respect and honor and delight in God's word. So don't test God out. We're all sinners. We all falter. We all fail from time to time. But God loves us so much that he's going to pick us up. The promises are in the scriptures. But you better know the scriptures. You better know them. So how do we assay then our nation? How do we assay, test our nation at this critical hour? I want to leave you with the words of Thomas Jefferson in his notes on the state of Virginia. Listen to what he wrote. Indeed, he said, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. That is a heavy thought, folks. Listen to what he said. This is back 200 and some years ago. He said, Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. God has been just to our country. God has been just to our nation. God has been merciful and gracious to our nation when we have honored him as a nation. But little by little, that honor is being set aside. We took God out of the schools. We took prayer out of the schools in the 60s. We've been trying to take the name or the phrase under God out of the Pledge of Allegiance. We've been trying to take the Ten Commandments and, and, and successfully, in some cases, out of state houses and state buildings. We have a new visitor center at the Capitol where there is no mention of God whatsoever. And all the history that they give is, is, or most of the history that they give is revisionist rather than proper and true. So you tell me, how do we assay our nation? God is a just God. And His justice will not sleep forever. What is going to happen on this turn in November... We can't just say, God, have mercy. We have a responsibility to be discerning, active citizens of this country, vote wisely, pray. Like I said the other day, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm just telling you, pay attention. Pay attention to where people stand. And consider the future of this country. Now Judah had to go through what they went through 
God still had mercy on them. Remember that. But in these last days, how much mercy is left for the nations who reject God? There will only be justice when God judges the nations. God, have mercy on America. And when America begins to bless you again, then God bless America. Let's pray.